We do tend to put effort into the things we love in life. We, we make personal sacrifice for things we've loved. I, I know I've made that point many times in our study through uh, genuine love in Romans chapter 12, that, that we will put effort into things that, that we love doing or, or being part of. For example, Monday and Tuesday this week, once again, I found myself before the break of dawn sitting in a deer blind, hoping that some deer would walk in front of me after the sun came up. I hate getting up early. I absolutely hate getting up early, but deer hunting is one of those things I enjoy doing, so I put the effort, I, I make the sacrifices required to engage in it. All of us have a list of things that, that we will make sacrifices to do. My wife likes estate sales. She will drive out of her way to look for one when she just sees a sign alongside the, the road. I won't even stop if I can help it if I'm driving past one. I don't understand it. Some of you love gardening. Others, it's cooking, crafts, reading, watching sports, playing games. Whatever it is that you love, you find the means to put forth the effort to engage in it. You'll make the personal sacrifices required to, to in, engage in what you love. As I said, I've made this point many times in our series on developing genuine love, but I want us to have this idea in the forefront of our minds as we consider where the church fits into the list of the things that we love. This week we're looking at a third small New Testament letter. Last week we looked at the shortest letter in the New Testament. This week we're looking at the shortest letter in the New Testament again, and yet we're not looking at the same letter. Last week, we looked at 2 John. That's the shortest letter in the New Testament by number of verses. This week, we're looking at 3 John. 3 John is the shortest letter by number of words. In the original Greek, there are only 219 words in this very brief letter of 3 John. If we were to read 2 John and 3 John back to back, it would be clear that there are several similarities in style as well as in the subject matter. It gives the appearance that most likely these letters were written at the same time, and John found some of the same phrases coming to his mind as he wrote. Uh, some of the ideas they were was communicating was falling off his pen. I'm sure we've all had experience with that, where we read something during the week or we hear a, a story of some kind, and and then it pops up later a couple more times in the week in our thoughts and in our our conversations with others. It's, it's in our minds. Well, that's what seems to be going on here with John as, as these phrases come from in both the letters. At the same time, the two letters, 2 John and 3 John, they're, they're dealing with very different issues. 2 John was anonymous. It was addressed, if you recall last week, to the chosen lady, and that lady remained unnamed. By contrast, 3 John is addressed to a specific individual, Gaius. We don't know who Gaius was, it was a common name in, in the first century, and there's at least two or three other individuals by that name mentioned in the New Testament. I say two or three because there's debate if, if there's three mentions of Gaius besides this, but there's debate if two of those are the same person or not. But it's a common name in the, the first century. We know that. It's clear, though, John is not trying to be obtuse about who he's sending this letter to. He wrote it publicly to Gaius. We just don't know who Gaius was. As we've done for the last couple of weeks, let's, let's start this evening simply by, by reading the letter in full. 
John writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that they may be fellow workers, so we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. This evening, I, I want to walk through this brief letter together. And as, as we do that, the, the main idea that we should see coming out of this letter is that our love for Christ must result in helping his church grow. We, we talk about our love for Christ. We express our love for Christ. We, we claim to have love for Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, our love for Christ ought to result in helping his church grow. We've been dealing with, with genuine love for, for months now, and, and both of the short letters we've looked at in the last couple of evenings together before this also deal with love. Love keeps coming up over and over in the New Testament, with that, that mark of a genuine Christian. And love, again, is, is central in our letter. Love that that produces something. There, love has to accomplish something to be genuine. We must have results from our love for Christ, re- results that, that impact the, the growth of, of his church. Now, as you know, I don't normally fall into alliteration in my sermons, but I confess tonight I have. Our, our love for Christ must generate results, and, and those results are to be directed toward his church. Tonight, we're going to break this letter into four sections and demonstrate that each of those sections shows that there's a specific result that should come from our love for Christ. So our love for Christ must result in helping his church grow. The first specific result that we can see, it's found in verses 1 through 4, that result is that we should rejoice. We rejoice in spiritual growth within the church. We rejoice. I have already mentioned that we lack knowledge surrounding who Gaius was. John, as he wrote this, was most likely in Ephesus, but we have no idea where Gaius was located. We, we do know that John loved him. John even uses the same phrase that he used of the elect lady in, in 2 John, this is the one whom I love. 
This is someone one he has a personal connection to, a relationship with. A, uh, his, his heart is tied to this person. That the foundation of why that's the case, why John loved Gaius, seems as if it's because Gaius was one of John's converts. That, that's most likely what he means when he refers in verse 4 there to, to Gaius as, as one of my children. John likely shared the gospel of Christ with, with this man at some point, and, and he saw Gaius come to accept saving faith in, in Jesus. That salvation brought joy to John. Still, what I want us to notice is that is not the reason John is rejoicing now. That the reason that, that John's rejoicing in, in these first verses is because of things he's recently heard. Recently, says some brethren, some other believers, have come to him, they've come back to John from traveling, and they've testified that Gaius not only continued to believe the right things, he not only continued to believe the truth, Gaius was putting his faith into action. Truth was finding arms and feet in Gaius. His life was giving impetus to the truth that he believed. Look at verse 2. The way John writes is surprising. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. This is surprising. John places prosperity and health first in the things he's praying for regarding Gaius. That sounds unspiritual, doesn't it? Think about it. He's praying for health and wealth. Isn't the, the spiritual growth of others more important than, than financial prosperity and, and physical health? We, we would really expect a spiritual giant like John, I mean, he is the apostle, he's our, a spiritual giant, we'd expect him to put the eternal over the temporal, wouldn't we? Yet John lists temporal things first. They're his first concern in his prayer for Gaius. Why? Well, the reason is because Gaius' spiritual growth is a given. It's obvious from the report that John has received, Gaius displays constant spiritual growth. All all John can hope for is that things will go as well for Gaius in the physical realm as they are already going in the eternal. His spiritual growth is evident to all. It's obvious as we read these first verses that, that John is rejoicing in the spiritual growth of Gaius. Now, Gaius is no longer part of John's assembly. Maybe he was part of John's church at one time. We, again, have no idea. As I said, John's likely overseeing the church in Ephesus at this time. But but Gaius is somewhere else. Yet that doesn't diminish John's joy in in hearing that Gaius is growing spiritually. His spiritual growth represents spiritual growth within the church overall, within the the universal church, the, the body of the Lord Jesus John rejoices in growth at that level within the church as he hears this report concerning Gaius. Before we move on, let me ask you, do you experience joy in a similar fashion? Does hearing evidence about the spiritual growth of other believers bring joy to you? Is your joy the same if the believer is part of another church, or is your joy diminished when the person is not part of this church? It's certainly easier, I think, to to get excited when we see someone in our church growing spiritually. And after all, we will interact with with them. We, 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 frankly, benefit directly from their spiritual growth. 
If they're growing in our church, they will serve in our church. They will do things that will benefit our lives directly. Well, there should be just as much joy over someone showing spiritual growth in another church as there is someone growing spiritually in the pew down from us. We should rejoice when we see spiritual growth or hear spiritual growth in believers because it strengthens the church of Jesus Christ overall. Our love for Christ must result in helping his church grow. The the first specific result is that we rejoice. We rejoice. We rejoice in spiritual growth within the church. In in verses 5 and through 8, we we see a second specific response, or a second result. We respond. That's number two. We respond. We, We respond to physical needs in the church. Physical needs. The specific thing that John heard about Gaius is that Gaius has shown hospitality to these brethren who are now reporting John. These brethren had traveled to the city where Gaius lived, and Gaius provided hospitality. Gaius had willingly put them up, and he had provided for their physical needs, their their room and their board. Last week, if you were here, you remember that we talked about how important hospitality was in the, the early church. Traveling Christians did not readily have uh, available options of where they could stay when they traveled uh, away from their home. Hotels were few and far between, and they were not very reputable if they did exist. So traveling Christians depended on, on other Christians to house them. Well, these traveling brethren had reported to John, along with, we, we read here, the entire church where John was at, the church that John is overseeing. They'd come back and told this whole church what Gaius had done, that Gaius had supported them, that he had shown hospitality to them, he had housed them. Significantly, he had done this even though the entire group were strangers to him when they arrived. These were not people he knew. We should note in, in verse 5 that John writes that you are acting faithfully by doing this. That, that, that word, or, or the wording there indicates that what Gaius had done, his actions had sprung out of his faith. He had showed this hospitality because of his faith in Christ. He writes in the present tense, and the, <coughs> excuse me, that indicates that this action was in keeping with and habitual behavior. This is what Gaius normally was doing. He was accustomed to showing Christian love. And Christian love included hospitality, even to strangers, those he, he had no connection to other than the fact that they were one of Christ. Why was this his behavior? Because Gaius recognized that these men were not merely travelers who happened to be Christians. These were men traveling because they were Christians. These, let me say that again, they were not merely Christians. They were traveling because they were Christian. They were traveling as teachers and evangelists. They were taking the name of Christ to the surrounding areas. They were helping the church expand. Paul labels such men in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, as, as gifts that God gives to the church. He gives apostles, he gives also evangelists and teachers. So helping them was helping the church. In the very same fashion that the lady in Second John joined in the fellowship with false teachers when she housed them, well, Gaius here is joining as a fellow worker 
in the, the gospel ministry of these men as he houses them. He's working together with them because they carry the name of Christ forth. They're, they're traveling because they're Christians to carry the name of Christ. They went out, verse 7 says, for the sake of the name. And there's only one name that is above all names, is Jesus Christ. They're engaged in Christian work. Furthermore, he says there, Paul, or John notes that they're also following the example of Paul. They follow the example of Paul by accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Here, the, the Gentiles, that, that word Gentile is just being used generically for pagans or unbelievers, even though most of the church in, in Ephesus were probably Gentiles by ethnicity. Gentiles is just a, a word for unbelievers. At this time, there, there were many traveling teachers and philosophers that, that made their living traveling from town to town as public speakers. And, and some of these traveling speakers were, were really not much better than, than con men. Um, they, they actually, there's records of how they prided themselves on their, their ability to use their, their words to wring money from the populace. Well, apparently the early Christians took great pains to, to separate themselves from that kind of behavior. They want to make sure that, that the message of Christ was not at all tainted as if it were the message of a con person coming for, for money. But that made them more dependent on the church at large. If they're not going to take money from the people that they're speaking to, how do they survive? The only way they could survive is if other Christians provided for their means and their needs. Notice John writes to Gaius in verse 8 that his support of these men is good because this is what we ought to do. This is a very strong statement in verse 8. This is what we ought to do. We is placed emphatically in the verse. We ought to do this. All believers are included. That, that word ought means more than this is what is proper. Sometimes when we hear, heard we ought to do that, we read simply in our mind, this is what's right. No, this word speaks of an obligation. We are obliged to do this. All believers have an obligation to support those who are furthering the church through their actions. We must be fellow workers with those who are moving forward for the gospel. The, this word ought is in the present tense. It makes this a continuing obligation. It's not a one and done thing. We must continually work alongside those who are working for the cause of Christ. The type of behavior that the guys undertook with these men is the type of behavior that all believers are obliged to undertake. We must re respond to the physical needs of those who are working to build up the church of Christ. Now, missions work, of course, has, has changed in the way it's organized significantly from the, the days of the early church. Now, when we think about traveling Christians going out for the name of Christ, we have mission boards that, that oversee their, their work, and, and they serve as sending agencies in support of the local church. So things have changed in how it's done, but the obligation remains. A, a generic mission board is not responsible to see that the church of Jesus Christ expands through the efforts of people. We are, you and I, individual Christians working in the local church, retain this obligation. So we can fulfill our obligation in part through collective actions. Um, you may not be aware of it, but, but right now, Don and Chris Dillman are staying in our profits chamber for a few weeks. Early next year, we'll house the wheelers in, 
in there for a month or so. Last week in the Matias, stayed in the prophet's chamber overnight. It's easy for us to see why we would put the Matias up there overnight. I mean, they, they were presenting here in the service for the next day. It's not too hard to see why we might house the Wheelers because they are missionaries their church supports. But the Dillmans, although many of us know them, they're not even our missionaries. Why would we open our prophet's chamber for extended periods to, to men and women who are not directly connected to us? Well, it's because they've gone out for the sake of the name. They've accepted nothing from the Gentiles. We have an obligation to help as we can. Every time one of these types of, of people, one of these missionaries from various places, stays in our prophet's chamber, we are becoming fellow workers with the truth through them. Last week we saw that it's important that we're careful that we fellowship and participate only with those who actually carry the truth. But if they're carrying the truth, then we have an obligation to work alongside. Yet one danger I, I fear that we face is we're Americans. In our American mind, our model of, of supporting things is by outsourcing our efforts. We outsource things to other people that we don't want to do ourselves. Well, we dare not think that we can outsource our partnership responsibility with gospel efforts. It's we are not doing our efforts if we think that we have fulfilled it by outsourcing to the church, the prophet's chamber, supporting missionaries. That is not sufficient for us to fulfill our personal obligation. We need to look for efforts to support gospel workers that requires personal involvement. That, that might involve offering housing at times. It might involve taking missionaries out for meals when, when they are in town. It might involve taking vacation time and, and some of our precious bank savings and going on a trip to help serve a missionary working in another country. We, we would certainly love to take on more missionaries for financial support in our church, so that might mean that we sacrifice some of our own income that God has given us so that the church will have more money available to, to support missions. There's a lot of different ways that we individually can take action, but we must do it individually. The key is to recognize that we personally have an obligation to partner with gospel workers. Once we recognize that, once we understand our obligation, Christ will provide the opportunities to us so that, that we can help his church grow, because after all, it is Christ's church, and, and he is able to give us the opportunities. The challenge is for us to see that we are obliged to do something. Our love for Christ must result in helping his church grow. Second specific result is we respond. We respond to physical needs for the church. Third, we reject. We reject sinful behavior that damages the church. Sinful behavior that damages the church. If you look at this letter, how structured carefully, you'll learn that verses 9 and 10 are the only section and the only paragraph in, in this, the body of this letter that, that does not begin with beloved. John is not directly addressing Gaius in these verses. When he's talking to Gaius, he says beloved. He's, he's assuring him of his strong affection for him. But now he's raising a, a topic that isn't directly addressing Gaius. He's raising the topic of a problem person in the church. 
Here's where we learn of Diotrephes. The only things we know of Diotrephes is that, one, he was a leader in a local church, and two, he was a problem. Those were the only things we know about him. He loved his position of authority in the church. He, he loved, John says, to be first among them. He, he loved to be the leader in the church. We don't know if he was the leader of the church that Gaius was in or if it was another church in, in the city. What we do know is that Diotrephes refused to grant hospitality to the, the traveling men that Gaius housed. We don't know specifically why. John doesn't bring that up, but we do see that he slandered John in, in the process of things, and, and, and he ruled his church here as a dictator. He refused to allow anyone else in the church to house these men, and, and if anyone tried, he excommunicated that person from the church, if someone ignored his command as the leader. Now, I would assume that meant that if Gaius had been a member of Diotrephes' church, by the time he received this letter, he no longer was because he would have been excommunicated. We don't know how that all played out. What we do know is Diotrephes was bad news. His rejection of these men was a rejection of John and John's authority as an apostle. These men had clearly come from John and John's church. That's why they're reporting back to John about what treatment they received from Gaius. Several times in, in John's gospel, John equates receiving someone sent as receiving the person who sent him. For example, in John 5, verse 23, Christ speaks, and he says, So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Receiving the Son is equivalent to receiving the Father. Similarly, in John 12, 44 and 45, Jesus cries out and says, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. There's, again, the equivalence between the one who sent and the one who was sent. John 13, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. This equivalence between the one who sends and the one who receives the one who was sent. So you get the idea. John had sent these men. Diotrephes rejected them. That was a rejection of John. John was the sender. By rejecting those who were sent, he's rejecting the sender. Diotrephes' actions are sinful. Yet John doesn't deal with the issue of Diotrephes and his sin here. He, he just assures Gaius that when he comes, he will do so. All John is doing is acknowledging the issue, letting Gaius know that he is aware of, of both Diotrephes and the fact that, that Gaius acted against Diotrephes' command. Implied in these two verses is John's approval of Gaius' actions. But he doesn't directly deal with the, 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 the sin itself. Gaius saw that Diotrephes' position hurt the church. If all the believers in the, the town had followed Diotrephes' position and listened to his command, the, the work of these men would have been hindered. The, the progress of the church overall to expand would, would have been curtailed because the, the teaching and the preaching of these men would not have been possible. They would have had to return home sooner. Gaius acted on their behalf, and, and John approves. Diotrephes rejected these men, and, and John condemns. That's what 
he's trying to communicate here in these two verses. Now, I'm not going to linger on this point, but, but we should recognize that we do need to reject sinful behavior that damages the church. Church history is, is littered with men who have, have done great damage to the cause of Christ through their, their pride-filled dictatorial behavior. Sin loves to seek being first place, that, that, that goal of being first. Such behavior, that prideful behavior, always damages the church. It, it runs completely contrary to the, the character qualities of biblical leadership that are found throughout the New Testament. Still, in, in our sin-filled world, it's not surprising, really, that, that this kind of sinful behavior can find its way into the church. After all, that if you look through the, the world, those who rise to prominence tend to have the characteristic of self-promotion. And oftentimes, that works its way into the church. The lesson that John gives is that the members of the church must reject this kind of a person. They must reject this kind of behavior. They must reject this sin. This is hard. It means going against the apparent power holder in, in the church. It means voicing the minority opinion and going against the majority. It means taking the lumps that, that comes from your actions. It means trusting God. It's hard. But it's the right thing to do. It's what God expects because of our love for Christ. This is another result. Our love for Christ must result in in helping his church grow. The third specific result that, that we see in this letter is reject. We reject sinful behavior that damages the church. The fourth result comes out of, of verses 11 through 12, and that is that we replicate. We replicate. We replicate actions that, that build up the church. In, in verse 11, we we encounter the sole command in the entire letter. We have this, this whole letter with one command. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. This command comes right after another address of beloved. Having brought up Diotrephes, John seeks to assure Gaius of his affection for him. Yet he also recognizes that, that Gaius faces a spiritual danger. This, the influence of Diotrephes is ongoing. The, the pressure that, that this leader is creating in his church and, and throughout the, the city, it, that influence will not wane. Gaius must hold firm. He must do what is right ongoing. He, he did it once. He did it when these traveling men came through. He held firm then and he did what was right. But, but we'll, what will happen when the next issue arises? Because now Gaius has, has felt all the lumps that come from standing against Diotrephes. What will happen this time when he has to stand up again? Will Gaius prove true again and again? John hopes so. So he gives Gaius this advice in the form of command. The command is to imitate what is good, not what is evil. The, the word that John uses is the Greek word from which mimic is, is derived in our language. It involves the, taking efforts to copy a pattern through our own efforts, our own actions, to mimic something. He is to mimic what is good, not what is evil. 
We've all seen kids do this, right? We've all seen kids mimic someone. A young person selects a basketball player who he thinks is is the best player in the game, and and he watches how that player dribbles and how that player passes and how that player shoots. He studies his form, and, and he tries to copy that player as perfectly as possible. Sometimes he takes the mimicking even further by adopting the way the, way the, the player talks and, and walks when he's off the court. The young person wants to be just like that model player. Well, adults can fall prone to the same behavior. Adults want to act in a manner that receives acceptance from others. So adults tend to mimic that which is accepted. And we sometimes laugh in, in pastor's conferences at, at how in the evangelical world it, it became edgy a decade ago to, to wear blue jeans and, and, and flannel shirts to preach. It was edgy until everybody wore the same thing. We all tend to mimic what is accepted. We still do that as adults. Gaius could fall into this temptation to mimic what was acceptable, so John writes to him that he should not look to Diotrephes for his pattern of behavior. Diotrephes appears to have power, but, but he's proven by his rejection of John that he is not even saved. Gaius is to look for those who do right for patterns to mimic, not for one who does evil like Diotrephes. Look elsewhere. This is where John then brings another name into the letter, Demetrius. Outside of verse 12, we have no further knowledge of this man, Demetrius. The only other Demetrius in the Bible is the silversmith in Ephesus who, who led the riot against Paul in Acts chapter 19. And, and the reality is it might appeal to our fantasies that, that this Demetrius that, that led this riot against Paul and brought him into that, the big uh, amphitheater and, and tried to get him put to death became saved somewhere down the road here in the gospel and became a servant of the church. I'm not saying that God could not do such a thing, but we have no reason to think that's the case here. That, that would just be two, two names being the same and drawing a large set of connections that may or may not have any reason to exist. All we know is that De- Demetrius is a man with a good reputation. John points to him and he says, this is, is, is one who is good. Everyone who knows him says the same thing. Everyone testifies, witnesses to that fact that that word testimony comes up many times in verse 12. There's a testimony about this man. He has a good reputation. Everyone knows that. Even the truth itself bears witness to him because he does what the truth says a, a good person should do. And then John points to himself and he points to his church. We testify to his character. It's possible that Demetrius is the one who carried this letter to Gaius, but that even that's speculation. All we know is that in some way, Gaius is going to have an opportunity to observe Demetrius. And, and as he does, he will see that this is a man who builds up the church for the sake of Jesus Christ. The implication is that, that this is the kind of man that Gaius should pattern himself after when he seeks to mimic someone who does good. Of course, our Lord is our ultimate pattern. We are to follow Christ. But the reality is we need flesh and blood examples. We need people that will serve as our patterns. We will naturally find ourselves copying others. It's in our very nature. The warning that we need to take is that we need to choose carefully who we will mimic. 
who we will choose patterns from, and then follow those people. We need to look who, if we replicate their pattern, will allow us to build up the church. That, that means we want to mimic men and women who are already building up the church. The, these will not be men and women who are promoting themselves. These will be men and women who are promoting Jesus Christ. These will not be men and women who have the respect of the world. They, they will likely not have positions of power or authority. They will be humble servants serving the Lord however they can. That's who we are to identify and, and mimic. Examine yourself tonight. Are your actions building up the church of Jesus Christ? Are you strengthening his body with the strength, the energy, the finances, everything he's given you? Are you building up his church? If not, then you need to select a pattern for your life and make some changes. I want to be like someone who is doing this. Find someone that you know that is building up the church of Christ and make intentional changes to do what that person is doing. After all, even as you're looking at others to pattern yourself after, there's likely someone who is using you as a pattern. If you're not building up the church of Christ, that means trickling down from you. Others are not either. One of the sad things that I've observed over the years is the problem of longtime Christians setting bad patterns for new believers. New believers are hungry to please Christ. They, they seek opportunities to learn and grow. They, they, they come to every service. They, they joyfully join in on the prayer meetings. They, they don't care if they know the proper way to pray or not. They show up for activities like work days in the church. They, they just want to help any way they can. And as they do all these things, they begin to notice that, that those who have been saved longer don't do these same things. People refrain from praying in groups. People don't jump to, to read scripture in, in Sunday school. People skip church service. People behave differently than, than what these new believers expect. But since they've been saved longer, the new believer sees them as a pattern for what their Christian life should look like. Now, we tend to explain this phenomenon by, by saying that the new believer has burned himself out with his early excitement. You know, the new believer was just so excited, he, he jumped in too far and did too much, and he burned out. That's why he's no longer doing all these things. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that matches up to that assessment. From all I see in Scripture, it seems as if there is no upper limit to the energy that God will give us if we seek to serve him. It seems like if we are truly serving Christ, there is no burnout possibility. Burnout comes because Christ is not the center of our joy. And I fear the reason we look around and we see so many people not doing all these things that you see early Christians doing, new believers, is because Christ is no longer the center of joy. Instead of Christ being the center, we are once more the center of our own joy. We've put ourselves back in the center, and the result is we set poor examples for new believers. We are more Diotrephes than Demetrius. Rather than building the church of Christ, we hinder the church of Christ. Examine yourself. 
Are you a Diotrephes or a Demetrius when it comes to setting the right kind of example? Our love for Christ must result in helping his church grow. The, the fourth specific result that we've seen in this short letter is that we replicate. We replicate the actions that build up the church. That is what Christ expects of us as his children. Our love for Christ must result in helping his church grow. As I said at the outset, we will make the time, we will make the sacrifice for the things we love. I proved that this week when I went out deer hunting. You prove it through the things you did this past week too. You did things that you loved. You made the time for it. You made the sacrifices required. The question is whether our week also proved our love for Christ. Did we sacrifice for things that resulted in building up his church? In the shortest letter in the New Testament, we see four specific results that, that we should find in our lives because of our love for Christ. Four results that, that will help his church grow. One, we rejoice. We rejoice in the spiritual growth within the church. Two, we respond. We respond to the physical needs for the church. Three, we reject. We reject sinful behavior that damages the church. And then four, we replicate. We replicate actions that build up the church. Four results that should be found in our lives because of our love for Christ. Our love for Christ must result in helping his church grow. Let's pray. Father, we've spent this time in this little